I normally just like to wave them on and go anyway, just to scare them, you know, when you come to that wave. <laughs> hey, if uh, you're uh, not a member and you'd like to make, consider being a member, we have our membership class right after this. We always have a little extra lunch, a little nosh. It doesn't make you a member, but if you want to kick the tires and see what our mission is all about, we certainly welcome you to that. We're looking at this question of wisdom. And we, we've been talking about the Bible in so many ways. We've talked about why the Bible was written, that you have a book no one ever thinks it's strange, but it is, coming from an oral society. Well, because the invention of the alphabet, as well as the codex, the page, allowed it, the scrolls to be put together into a book form. And also because of the heresy going. We saw the Bible didn't fall down out of heaven, but uh, men and women gathered together, had the apostolic authority. Apostles are those that were with the apostles, and the rule of faith. It was authoritative before it was in this book is why it's in the book. And then we saw how do you interpret, but we come to the question of what do you do about scripture that is outside of the Bible. I have a copy here of the Holy Quran, I have a copy of that. I had a copy, I laid it somewhere, it's Bhagavad Gita, the, it's part of the Hindu scriptures writing of Krishna, the sayings of Buddha. What do we do those as Christian? And also, what about people that aren't saying holy writings, but they give you advice? Uh, there's a lot of advice out there. I like what uh, Oscar Wilde, the uh, philanthropist kind of guy, said, bigamy is having one wife too many, and for me, monogamy is the same. One wife too many. <laughs> Phyllis Diller, that great sociologist, uh, she said, Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. He didn't have to listen about all the other men she could have married, and she didn't have to listen about how, what a great cook his mother was. That's how she looks at that. <laughs> well, how do you get wisdom? We did a series a little bit ago on getting wise counsel uh, from our drama department, and we have gone and re-interviewed Getting Advice. Watch this. Who's going to pay $5 for your help? Yeah, man, you don't know nothing about nothing. I know a lot about stuff. And thanks. Y'all just ignorant. Not my fault. Stupid gravity. Here is your tax return. Go ahead and sign and send it to the IRS. Wow, my refund is more than I made last year. Yeah, I got a little creative. Uh, yeah, you claimed kitty litter as a business expense? That is where your cat does his business. Duh. Lady, you need to get your real account. He is in no way an expert in this area. When you're on the catwalk, you want to lead with your hips and pause, turn. Thank you. Next. My car won't start. I want to know if it's because my battery's dead. Dude, there's a great mechanic like two blocks from here. All right, I'm going to test it to see if this battery's got any charge. How are you going to do? Watch and learn. I would not do that. Ah! 
battery is good. <laughs> That'll be five dollars. Next! <laughs> okay. Oh, Tony, you're choking! Okay, here's the proper way to do the homelick. Next! People, you need to seek out someone with expertise in the area in which you require help. I have mixed together a secret concoction for restoring masterpieces. I would not do that! Oh no. Get down! <laughs> are you the guy that told my boyfriend he should kiss another girl to make me jealous? You are welcome. Ow! Oh! Ah, ow! For five bucks, I can help you with that swine! Oh, ow! Oh, ow! Oh, ow! Oh, ow! Oh, ow! Oh, ow! Oh, 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 <laughs> the question of scripture outside of our scriptures and what we learn from it, it's very simple. When the Bible speaks, we speak. When the Bible is silent, we're silent. You've heard that before. When the Bible is silent, we're silent. We respectfully maybe learn things from other people, from other areas and other faith. But when the Bible speaks, it is very clear we speak. And we speak boldly with faith and hope and love. With faith, do not let other people hijack and, if you will, capture your faith. Second of all, this sense of hope. Our hope is not, as we keep saying, not in a book, but in the living word, Christ. But this is the one that leads us to this Christ. And above all, in love. Never growing tired of love. I have a friend of mine who was, uh, he's actually for a while, governor in Colorado, Billy Ritter, and he was a missionary, great Catholic, loves the Lord. And when he was over there, the nun said to him, you know, when people come over here, when you're here six weeks, you'll write a book. When you're over here six months, you'll write an article. When you're over here six years, you won't write anything because you'll be there long enough to know how little you know. And we always come running into life, and as soon as we get the first thing, we think we can all figure it out. Is that a... Another conference, you know, the Catholic Church is having as hard a time raising clergy as Presbyterians or other. But a young lady, she chose to give her life to the Lord and to serve and to become a nun. And she took her vows and she went and they sent her to Africa. And over in Tanzania, when she was serving there, one of the tribes came in, burned the monastery to the ground, captured her, beat her, and raped her for three days. And when she was released, she had such a crisis of faith in the question of, God, I serve you, I give up everything that I have to serve you, and this is what you allow. And the question is in the 50 cent word theodicy, the justice of God. And any philosophy or any religion worth its salt has to answer the question of suffering. And this table certainly is an unexpected, remarkable answer to that. But Paul, as he is writing, and he's writing to the Romans likewise, says there's this eerie correlation between what the Greeks and the Romans believed how life should be lived 
And they didn't have the formal law, they didn't have Moses, the rich traditions of Israel, and the Jews themselves. And he writes this to them in the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn with me over to Romans and to the second chapter, page 915 in your pew Bible, and verses 12 to 16. Paul, as we've said before, has not been to Rome. He says that. He's probably in Corinth writing this. It's the longest theological letter that he ever writes. He's trying to combine together how Jew and Gentile, what has God done with the law now? But in the middle of it, he starts to remember in the first chapter, he says, what can be known about God is clear in the creation. That everybody, even the Greeks, whether you know it was Zeus, whether it's Apollo, whoever, that you have a sense that there is a great God out there. But then he says this other thing that nobody really expected him to say. Look at verse 12. All who have sinned apart from the law, that means the formal Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, Talmud, will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And pause, what he's saying is just because you have heard the truth doesn't mean anything. Just hearing the truth, it's those that do the truth. Just because you know the gospel that Christ died for you doesn't mean anything unless you obey it. And that's what he's saying. He said, so there are those that are saved and judged with the law or without the law. Then he says this wild thing, verse 14. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. What he's saying is that Gentiles do the right things. And they haven't been told formally by God to do that. Why do you do that? He says it's on everybody's heart. And any sociologist worth her studies will tell you, and if you've studied this, how remarkably the body of how we are to behave is similar. For all these, suppose all these different beliefs and all these different, it's remarkable when you study sociology and anthropology what the similarities are. Well, Paul says, well, I'll tell you why, because God's written it on their heart. And he says someday they're gonna stand before the Lord and they're gonna be accused or, strangely, excused. Jesus said to whom much is given, much is required. Of whom little is given, little is required. We're judged according to the light that we've been shown. And so as I've said before, what if you, one of the tribes you, you probably studied in anthropology, Yana Mau Mau, South America means the fierce people. Yana Mau Mau means you turn, you insult me, I'm, I'm obligated under my ethic to bash your brain in when you're not looking. It's the fierce people. And they're pretty much animistic, and they have, they worship the gods of the jungles and things. Well, what if you have a Yana Mau Mau, and he dies one day, and he stands before Christ? And the great question is always, what about him? Well, Paul makes it clear. He is saying, well, first of all, he would stand up, and if his god is Bahunga, and I'm making that up, that's not the name. If he says, well, you're Bahunga, Jesus would say, no, I'm Jesus, but that's close. And then the next thing, it's not what he knows, it's what he does with what he knows. He will either say, you know what, it wasn't fair. You didn't give me the right wife, I didn't have the right hut, I didn't have the right stature, you didn't take care of me, I didn't give me a prosperous time, and I deserve paradise because of life on earth. Or he'll say, 
you know, I tried my best to help out the tribe and to be there, and I don't deserve it. I didn't live up to what I should have, but if you let me in, it's out of your love. That's the kind of person that when they hear the gospel, it's called the proto-gospel, they'll respond to it. And missionaries, and you know, time and time again, you'll bump into people that will say, I knew that, I just never knew what it was. Helen Keller, remember? when she goes blind, deaf, and dumb as, a, as an infant. And then later on, and when Annie Sullivan wrote and explained to her how to read, and when she told her about God, Helen Keller, in this world of darkness, said a fascinating thing. She said, I always knew him, I didn't know his name. Now, no one had ever taught her anything. What Paul is saying, that there is written on our heart, to whom much is given, much is required. You and I aren't supposed to leave people, and the more I study, Quran or Talmud or Bhagavad Gita or the sayings of Buddha, the more I'm impressed with how radically different the book is that you have. And also, you know, there's some wonderful Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu and, uh, and Jewish people out there. And just, there's some really nice pagans in LA. Have you ever met them? I'll introduce you to a couple afterwards. It's really easy. And they're really good people. They're really trying, but they need to be told the truth. And God, in another place, even in the Old Testament, tells them, I'm involved with other people's histories. Turn with me over to Amos and to the ninth chapter. It's on page 750 in your pew Bible. Paul will tell when he's at Lystra in Acts 14, because it's a Canaanite fertility cult is their religion, they see the cycles of life and stuff, and Paul will step on that. He will say, did not God give you the seasons and the different times to show you who he is? Well, look what God says. Now, Amos remembers in the north, 10 tribes, they've split with the south, Assyria's rising, and Amos is just smacking all the different nations for their sins, and then he really belts Israel for not helping the poor. He goes, you're just putting money in your pockets, higher lifestyle, and you're not helping the poor? God holds you account. Then look what God says here, verse seven. Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel, says the Lord? What? God says, I love the Ethiopians like I love you. Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt? Pause, yeah, that's the Exodus event. It's the central event of the Old Testament of the taunt, God saving him. And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr. Not Armenians, that's from Glendale. Arameans. <laughs> what he's saying is, did I not tell you I was in the nation of the Philistines? I am there. And then he says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. What God is saying is, I hold these nations accountable for the laws they have. Even heathen pagan nations know better than the things they're doing. Because I was all the time revealing you. He said, by the way, Israel, to whom much is given, much is required. I expect something more out of you. What do you think expects out of the church of Jesus Christ on the other side of the incarnation of Christ and the redemption? And so he is involved in all those things. But what do we do with these scriptures outside? Turn with me in your Bible over to the 151st Psalm. Oh, that's right, you don't have it. I do right here. Did you know there is a 151st Psalm? Outside of the Dead Sea, of course, as you know, uh, the Essenes, and this cave here, I think this is cave four. This scroll was found in cave 10. In 1948, we've talked about before, the little 
Arab boy who found through a rock and heard something break and went up there and there were all these clay jars with all these documents. These are, the Essenes were kind of the end timers. They dropped out before Tiberius came and they wrote everything down. So these were 2,000 year old documents that they found in these caves. And one of these was this manuscript. This is the 51st Psalm, 151st Psalm. And what it says is, Hallelujah of David, love David, the son of Jesse. Smaller was I than my brothers and the youngest of the sons of my father, so he made me shepherd of his flock and ruler over his kids. Notice the Hebrew parallelism going on there. My hands have made an instrument and my fingers a lyre like a guitar, and so I have rendered glory to the Lord, thought I within my soul. The mountains do not witness to him, nor do the hills proclaim. But the trees have cherished my words and the flock my works. In other words, he's outside. For who can proclaim and who can bespeak and who can recount the deeds of the Lord? Everything has God seen, everything has he heard and he has heeded. He sent his prophet to anoint me, Samuel, to make me great. My brothers went out to meet him, handsome of figure and appearance. They were tall of stature and handsome by their hair. What he's saying is God doesn't like tall people with lots of hair, is what he's saying. But uh, <laughs> the Lord God chose them not. And he sent and took me from behind the flock and anointed me with holy oil and he made me leader of his people and ruler over the sons of his covenant. Now, why is that not in the Bible? Well, as we're talking about when, in the redaction process and the canonization process of putting together, they said that's a good writing, and some synagogues had used that at some point, but they pretty much agreed David did not write that. David never would have talked about Samuel and all the things that he did that way. It's, it's a nice psalm, but it's, it doesn't have that authority. And so likewise, when we go to other holy writings and other we can learn and what we can learn without agreeing with the presuppositions and conclusions of other religion and other holy writings. By that, some of them have some things, when the scriptures speak, it trumps any other religious writing because God was involved in a unique way in the writing of it. It's not good women and men guessing about life, it's people saying, I saw this, this happened, and God proved it in that way. And as you know, our good Mormon friends. We have, you know, lots of Mormons that interact. The Book of Mormon, they agree with the scripture, they have their Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, good to read, it's not binding. Our Jewish friends in Talmud, and the, in Midrash, and the teaching of the rabbis, great stories and interpretations and insight, but for us Christian, it's not binding. Our Quran communities, Tafirs, which are the commentaries on the Quran, Muslim, wonderful, fun people, a lot of them are. I know you don't hear fun like a Muslim, but actually, like my dry cleaner uh, from uh, North Africa, Muslim, a wonderful guy, we're always talking a lot. And I can learn certain things, and that's true, and be quiet and sometimes respectful and listen. But when scripture speaks, when it tells something, it's a whole different level. And one of the things we're debating as we get together, we're gonna be having a town hall meeting coming up um, on next week at 9-11 at four o'clock in the afternoon because one of the things that we're trying to wrestle with within our church is, what about those that have never heard outside of Christ? God loves them, God's working with them, but there is one name under heaven we can be saved. His name is Jesus, amen? amen. And that's the solid truth that we have. And we leave into God, God is the one who is the judge, I'd like to be there saying, let this one in. No, not that one. But I'm not going to be there. And neither are you. God says, and Christ says, you don't know their hearts. I know their hearts. You don't. And as I've always told you, the three surprises of heaven. Who's there? You'll go, wow. 
who's not there, wow, and the biggest surprise that you're there. Those will be the big surprises. And it shouldn't be in Christ as we are, we are gathered there. So the four real Ps, which I say of theology of this time, we agree with a lot of, do you know the common table issues of a lot of people of other faiths? First of all, there's one of poverty. We all agree with helping the poor and particularly our, the poor children. John says, if a brother sees another in need and yet shuts his heart against him, how can the love of Christ dwell in him? John said, if you see a brother in need and you're sitting on your wallet not helping, how, how can you claim to be a follower of Christ? To the level that you can. We agree with that, with our Muslim friends as well as our Jewish friends and Buddhist and Hindu. What about the question of peacemaking? Jesus said, blessed are the peace seekers. No, he didn't. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. You don't just find, you and I are called to come into conflict and turmoil and be reconcilers, the ministry of reconciliation. And not only that, but what about pollution? There's many a many a parable of Christ of tending the vineyard of God and of caring for this one plant. We're not earth worshipers like some of our friends, but yet we have a responsibility to care for the next generation if Christ doesn't return. But the fourth P, after poverty, peacemaking, and pollution, the person and work of Christ, that's the trump card. And that's the one where we come and say it is by God's love and his salvational. And Paul was great at being able to use where they were at. Last passage, turn over to Acts 17. So we agree with our friends of other religions and of no religion and a lot of things, common table issues, and we can learn from them and love them, and as they say, evangelism is loving somebody so much till they say why. You have to earn the right to be heard. If you're really a judgmental, obnoxious Christian, do me a favor, don't tell anybody you're a Christian, all right? We got enough of that going on. If you're gonna be loving and classy about it, yeah, then do tell them. Notice what Paul does here. Paul, remember, was brilliant. We know he speaks five languages. He's taught by Gamaliel, who was kind of the Jewish Socrates of the first era. Festus, remember the Roman procurator when he's standing here in court, he says, Paul, great learning hath made thee mad. He said, Paul, you're so stinking smart, you're psychotic, talking about Jesus is alive. But he's made, even though he becomes a tent maker, for the academy. And here he's at Athens, the center of intelligentsia of the Western civilization of democracy. Watch him rock and roll on this, verse 22. And Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now Paul looks at them and he says, you know, you're a really religious people, I can tell that. In fact, he quotes this Greek poet from Athens, Aratus, who said to an unknown God, there must be a God that no one knows. Not just Zeus or Jupiter's out there, but the big God that nobody really knows. Kind of like our Hindu or Buddhist friends come in the sense of, the sense of becoming one with Brahman out there. And he, he finds commonality, but now watch how he launches off of this thing. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands. A pause. By the way, the Stoics thought that the gods kind of lived in essence around the temple. If you go to one of their temples, they wouldn't have a big room like this. 
You didn't go in, you worshiped outside and the spirit was there. He's playing off what they believe. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Because they were, remember, feeding the gods their offering. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they should live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, we too are his offspring. Three times he has just quoted pagan Greek poets and using it to say that I agree with you. And he said, God did that so that you would go searching after him, and he, but he's not that far away. This guy's good, it's like God's using him. Look at verse uh, 29. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deed is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Why, God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He said, God gave you a pass for a while in your ignorance. No more. The truth is out there now, and you need to repent and come because there is a day of accountability coming, and the judge is his name is Yeshua. He's the Messiah, he was crucified, he is alive. The resurrection. By the way, the Greeks hate the idea of the resurrection because they didn't like this body stuff. The spiritual stuff was the cool stuff. So he's kind of making him go gag. So this is how they respond to him, verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, well, hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. (laughs) Paul wants you to either agree with him or fight him. None of this, and they go, let's talk about again tomorrow. So he goes, I'm out of here. I had a friend uh, who's an Australian who was raised in the London and he learned properness. He says, every time Paul preached, there was a revival or a riot. Every time I preached, they served tea. <laughs> and Paul's kind of going, no, I'm out of here. But you see how he has used that. Where the truths of what you have speak, yeah, but then he leads them to from general revelation out there to specific. God made the world. Everybody knows it should be good. The world is not how God made it. It has fallen because of sin. But God said, I'm going to make it right someday. And you can't get over this. The world was perfect, it is not perfect. It has fallen and broken and we're part of it. But God did not leave us there. That's what this table is all about. The world can tell you a lot. The physical cosmos, the psalmist says that heavens declare the glory of the Lord. When you look up out there, John Muir, Scott, born in Scotland, they immigrated to the United States. A Calvinist, father was a strict Scott Presbyterian. Like the old Scotsman that fell and broke his leg and said, I'm glad that's over. Kind of like everything has to happen the way it is. And that sense of being able to, well, he came here, he was a very brilliant mind. He was a little boy, would invent little, he'd put together clocks on his own and little microscopes. They immigrated and they went to Indianapolis and there on line, working on a conveyor belt, he got some metal in his eye and the other eye went blind as well, in a sympathetic blindness. 
And for six weeks he lay in his bed and he thought he'd never see again. And when he finally saw and he went outside, John Muir wrote this in his journal. As soon as I got into heaven's light, I started on another long excursion, making haste with all my heart to store my mind with the Lord's beauty and thus be ready for any fate, light or dark. And it was from this time that my long continuous wanderings may be said to have fairly commenced. I bid adieu to all my mechanical inventions, determined to devote the rest of my life to the study of the inventions of God. And of course, he goes up and he heads up to Northern California in the Sierras. He started the Sierra Foundation, the Sierra Club. He's the one that had the influence for Teddy Roosevelt. to Because when he was walking outside, he saw all this beauty and all this wonder. When he was walking up here at Yosemite and seeing the waterfalls and smelling the flowers and hearing the birds, as Longfellow said, the mountains are the manuscripts of God. They tell you that God is powerful. They tell you, think of the violence it took to make Yosemite. Think of the time and the horrible things, those glaciers and the earthquakes and the freezing and the cracking and these terrible forces. And yet when you and I stand there, we think it's cool because it didn't happen on our watch. Well, the heavens can tell you that God is powerful, but it doesn't tell you about your heart. This table does, though. God spoke in creation, but he spoke here in a different way. That nun I spoke about, who was brutally raped and beaten in Tanzania, almost killed her. She spoke at a conference I was at. I wasn't in the same room as her, but someone was telling me of this event. And she got up front, and she was talking about helping the poor in Africa and how to make relationships. And, and she stopped, and she had never shared that story before. And she said, you know, when I was over there, a horrible thing happened to me. And she kind of shared how she had been captured and beaten and raped for days. And, but she said, but you know, now I've found healing and God is still can use things like that. When she got done, that wasn't the point of her talk. People were coming up, but a young woman in her early 20s came running up and grabbed this nun so hard, she knocked her to the ground. She was weeping and saying, I can live, I can trust, it'll be okay. This girl had been date raped violently some months ago and had given up on not only her faith and her family, but was on her way to taking her own life. And the story of this nun, God used to touch her. Is God the author of evil things? No. Is God uncaring and heartless? No. Is God redemptive and powerful? Absolutely. And when you come to this table and you see what God has done, and you see this love that he has, as they say, when Christ went over and laid on that cross and said, I love you this much, and laid down and gave what you owed and I owed in our place, there's strength here. Not all strength, just enough. Christians don't claim to have a corner on all truth. We claim to have a corner on the truth, Jesus Christ. And if God spent this much effort and time to create a world he knew was passing away, 
Can you even imagine the things that he is preparing for us forever and who you and I will be? And God says, I promise you.